This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Make sure you email them at CommuniCoreWeekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com and tell them that we sent you. Hello and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're just going to go back into talking about the sports this week because you all know we love the sports. (laughs) What are you laughing at, George? Because this is what happens when we do banter that's not planned, which is what makes banter banter. Well, yeah, that's that's literally the definition of banter, right? Unplanned conversations. And I just... Saw a bunch of people playing cricket. You mean like about what, what we hear when people listen to the show? Yeah, that's Zing! Funny. Crickets. Ooh, ooh, ooh boy. Oh, oh. I should have come up with a winter sport, too. A winter sport? It would have been better because of the Winter Olympic theme oh. that we're talking about. Oh, well. Let's just go into the history segment. Okay, we can do that. It's time for Disney History! So last week on the show, uh, episode 222, we started talking about the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympics and how uh, the Walt Disney Company was doing the opening ceremonies for it. So this week, we're going to continue that conversation, uh, talking about what came next. So while a lot of Walt's time and effort uh, went to the elaborate theming of the overall Squaw Valley, uh, you know, there still remained the not-so-small matter of the opening ceremonies themselves. And, you know, it's always a highlight of the Olympic experience. You know, the opening ceremonies really needed to be groundbreaking because, for the first time, they would actually be televised uh, across the nation. You know, they can tune in to CBS and witness this Disney-created extravaganza. So Walt was determined to raise the bar with an exciting show of fanfare and color that would properly do justice to the gathering the world's best athletes. The highlight of any opening ceremonies is the lighting of the Olympic flame, and for this, Walt had big plans. Once the Olympic torch, of course designed by John Hench, arrived in Los Angeles, it would make a short stop at the Los Angeles Coliseum, paying homage at the site of the 1932 Summer Games. It would then begin a pilgrimage north, carried on foot by hundreds of high school athletes through such cities as Fresno, San Francisco, and Sacramento. The torch would then be transported high up into the mountains surrounding Squaw Valley, where Walt and his committee had a grand design for the torch's entrance into the newly constructed ice arena. So this is a a quote from Walt, and he said, Can you picture that setting with the background of 5,000 high school instrumentalists and choir singers into which parade the representatives of the competing nations, each in a different and colorful costume? It will be a tremendous spectacle. End quote. So there was one aspect of the Olympic opener, though, that raised some concern. Worried animal animal advocates loudly questioned just what would become of the 2,000 doves apiece, which were actually pigeons, uh, that would be released during the opening ceremonies. Very clever. Well, Disney magic. As, as long as they didn't take off their tiny little jackets. That's true. Their tiny little scarves, Nobody would know. Fine. Nobody would know. So Okay. So winter in the Sierra Nevada mountains can grow quite severe, leaving many to wonder if the birds were being set free only to suffer certain death in such icy climbs, which makes me feel bad for my joke now. 
But as always, Walt had an answer. But that's why they were wearing jackets. <laughs> that's right. The mate of each pigeon would be waiting in San Francisco, and the Olympic bird, when released, could home in on its partner's call. This mating call would be the lifeline leading each pigeon to safety. So with wow. February 18th creeping closer, uh, even innocuous tasks became kind of problematic. Now, Walt had hoped to use the original 1896 composition of the Olympic hymn to, uh, to again pay tribute to the event's illustrious past. Uh, however, his committee struggled to find a copy, or at least one that could actually be understood. And here's a direct quote from Tommy Walker. We wrote to several countries, and they all sent us Japanese versions we couldn't understand. End quote. So, after several laborious attempts at translation, Walt conceded defeat and opted for a new arrangement. The rest of the pageantry plans, though, were rounding into shape just in the nick of time. Uh, the Tower of Nations took center stage, uh, the snow sculptures had been installed, and even the planned nighttime entertainment promised to exceed expectations. And a variety of cinematic and musical programs would play each night in the Olympic Valley, uh, Olympic Village, offering a pleasant diversion to the athletes who had competed so tirelessly during the day. And Walt even convinced Wally Bogue of the Golden Horseshoe Review at Disneyland to step in with some live entertainment. And months of furious effort led to those on the pageantry committee confident and proud of a job well done. So despite a deficit of time and money, most committee members believed that the spectacle they had planned would soar beyond the public's lofty expectations. But agreement was not unanimous. Just one week before the opening ceremonies, an anonymous Disney staffer confided to the press that Quote, this will be the first production on which Walt has lost, end quote. So if Walt and his committee were going to lose, though, it would not be by their own hands. It would be a much more powerful foe that turned its malevolent sights on Squaw Valley and all of Walt Disney's hard work, and that foe was the weather. So mid-February saw a torrential rainstorm descend upon Squaw Valley, and the organizers always knew that the local weather might prove uh, mischievous, but they were not prepared for what came. This deluge of rain arrived really at the worst possible time, and it threatened to quite literally wash all of the snow needed for the competitive events away, and with it, you know, everyone's hard work as well. In a twist that proves truth can be stranger than fiction, Native Americans of the Washoe tribe were called upon to perform a snow dance. They happily compile, uh, complied, and amazingly, the desperate maneuver worked. The rain stopped and snow began falling. Smiles turned upside down, though when the snow refused to stop, <clears throat> you know. So a blizzard developed, restoring the much-needed accumulation of snow that had been washed away days before. And all they really had to do was wait, like, 60 years for Anna and Elsa. Yeah, of right? course, because they could have just did it with a snap of their fingers. Exactly. Um, but, you know, now the wintry conditions were threatening to disrupt the entire opening ceremonies. Uh, in fact, Vice President Richard Nixon, who had been charged with officially opening the games, had to cancel his helicopter flight and instead made the slow journey to Squaw Valley by car. And yet, as if by magic, the snow stopped just as the opening ceremonies were to begin. Rays of sunlight shone down for what seemed like the first time in days. So with the assembled athletes ready to partake in the traditional entrance march, it was finally time for the Olympics to get underway. With the severe weather finally abated, Walt's opening ceremonies unfurled in their full splendor. A cavalcade of gunfire and fireworks filled the valley. Thousands of voices rose and fell in song. So the doves slash pigeons were freed skyward, and they quickly flew off to their waiting mates. And tens of thousands of balloons were released into the air as well. Rockets buzzed through the sky, and the dropping flags that fluttered back to the ground. And the pageantry committee had set the perfect stage for the main event. The big moment had arrived at last, and it was time to light the Olympic flame. 
High up on Little Papoose Mountain stood Andrea Mead Lawrence, a gold medalist from 1956. She gracefully skied down the mountain, holding the torch all the while, with an honor guard of four to each side. Gliding to an effortless stop in front of the ice arena, Lawrence passed the torch to skater Ken Henry. After one lap around the rink, he lit the brazier and officially began the eighth Winter Games. The lone unfortunate element of these opening ceremonies was the meager attendance of 8,000, which was far below the anticipated 20,000. Of course, the snowstorm had wreaked havoc on the spectators' travel plans, leaving many in frustrating traffic jams all the way to Squaw Valley. But fortunately, although the ice arena had an understandably sparse crowd, the entire country was able to watch it on television, so it wasn't a total watch. <laughs> Walt's opening ceremonies and the rest of his Olympic contributions were an unqualified triumph and a welcome harbinger for the Squaw Valley Olympics as a whole. Although everyone involved had faced many obstacles in bringing the pageantry alive, Walt Disney's contributions stood alone. Just as he had done so many times throughout his life, Walt faced the challenges head-on and rose to new heights. So the 1960 Olympics had countless heroes, you know, the athletes traveling far and wide to the compete, uh, the Washu tribe for conquering the weather, the singers and musicians uniting in uh, the crowd and songs and more. But the memory that still lives on is Walt's unique ability to preserve through uh, struggle and still produce this magic. As the opening ceremonies finally concluded and the athletes began their slow parade out of the ice arena, the snow began falling again. What could have upended the entire Olympics opener had acquiesced at just the right time and respectfully remained clear throughout Walt's entire show. Perhaps no greater proof will ever be needed that even Mother Nature is a fan of Walt. She is. She totally, totally yeah. is. Well, because she's told us. Yeah, that's right. A right? few times. She left a message on the goat line. Yeah, see, that's what we're talking about. And we would love to hear your thoughts on the Olympics. Did you get to see them by any chance on television? Were you there in person? Anything like that. Just give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So for this week's Book of the Week segment, I am finishing up my look at what I consider the essential Walt Disney World guides for every fan and every historian. So the first one we're going to look at for this week is Building a Company, Roy O. Disney and the Creation of an Entertainment Empire by Bob Thomas, published in 1998. And I've talked about this book a lot. This is the official company biography of Roy O. Disney, and it really shares a lot about the creation of Walt Disney World from the perspective of Walt's older brother. So Thomas interviewed many company officials and people that were directly involved with the building uh, of Walt Disney World. Beyond the Walt Disney World history though, it is a great book about Roy and all the amazing contributions of the more silent partner of the company. Next up is Reality Land, True Life Adventures at Walt Disney World by David Koenig, released in 2007 with an update, I believe in 2014. So David is a well-known uh, author in Disney circles. He's a journalist who's written a lot about Disneyland, including the Mouse Tales books. But in Reality Land, David looks at the first 20 years of Walt Disney World with the creation of the Vacation Kingdom and Epcot Center. He interviews many cast members from all levels and presents some amazing anecdotes. David, though, is not a fan of Eisner, and it's apparent in this book. But Unfortunately, this is a book that seems to stop in the late 1980s, leaving us with gaps from the 90s and the 2000s that need to be filled in. It's a definite, though, to add to your collection and has a great notes section. 
The story of Walt Disney World Commemorative Edition various years from 1971 to 1982. And you may have seen this book. It's it's a big, like 11 by 17 book, shaped like a D with a cutout of the castle in the center. So, But a lot of people really remember this book fondly, and I know that it inspired a few current, current Imagineers to follow their dreams and actually work for the company. This book is a rare look at the construction of the Vacation Kingdom and offers some amazing photos of the property, the resorts, and the attractions being built. There are two versions that are almost identical that offer different maps in the middle, so now you gotta make sure you collect both of them. And I just have to mention that this is one of my favorites in my collection. Yes, I love this one. So the next one up though is Walt Disney World The First Decade, of course published in 1982. This one is a fascinating look from Disney that covers the first 10 years of the Vacation Kingdom. Uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes information and some amazing photos and attractions of attractions in the lands. Uh, unlike the current souvenir guides, Disney shared a lot of more random photos and more information, you know, detailing the attractions. There are also 15 and 20 year titles, but the first decade one is my favorite and offers more information on the 70s Walt Disney World than others. And of course, Epcot fans will want to pick up the 15-year title as well. So next up, we have Walt Disney World Hidden History, Remnants of Former Attractions and Other Tributes by Kevin Yee, 2nd Edition. So Kevin is one of the more prolific independent Disney author, authors. And his Hidden History, the first one was 2010, I believe, and this one is 2015. The 2nd Edition is a good look at the hidden or unfamiliar details that you'd find in the parks. Kevin also looks at tributes of former attractions that can be found today, and it's a quick and easy read, and it's sure to increase your nerdy status with all your friends. And I know that they, he pretty much goes to Walt Disney World on a weekly basis and documents the changes over the years. So next up, the three last books we're going to look at are all by Jason Sorrell, a former Imagineer who's now with Universal Creative. The first one is The Disney Mountains, Imagineering at its Peak. And this book covers the nine mountains at Disney parks around the world and focuses on their history and development. And six of the mountains are at Walt Disney World and offer a lot of insight into the attractions and their differences. Of course, there's a lot of great artworks. And the last two books are his Haunted Mansion book, which is now in its third edition, and the Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the Movies, which just has the one edition. So Jason writes the unparalleled histories of these two vaunted and inspiring theme park attractions. Covering the earliest concept artwork and inklings of the attraction, Jason shares how the attractions evolved and the uh, Imagineers actually worked on them. The spectacular feature of the books is the scene-by-scene -scene narrative of the attractions and the differences between the versions in each park. Jason covers the films as well, except for the last Haunted Mansion book that was cut out. And, you know, for researchers wanting more information on the, the development of the attractions, they're going to love this book as well. So there we go. We've wrapped up my essential look of Walt Disney World books over two different episodes. I hope it doesn't hurt so, your wallets. Well, my wallet's fine. I've had these for a while. Oh, fair, fair. That's okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, give us a call on the goat line or email us or hit us on Facebook. Tell us what you think are the essential Walt Disney World history books. So I had the opportunity to visit the Taste of the Carolinas Festival at Carowinds. Oh, this is I thought you meant second. food and wine. 
<laughs> no, oh. not the taste. Well, there is some food and wine, but that's a little bit different. Oh, okay, okay. So this is at Carowinds, not at Epcot. This is the second year they've done it, and I covered it last year and went back this year on the very first day, which was a Saturday. And all the food was fresh. <laughs> yeah, and everything was cold. Uh, it was like, no, I don't mean the food. I meant the, the park. Oh, was I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that was bad. It was barely in the 50s that day, and we had wind gusts of up to 28 to 30 miles an hour. So, Fury 325, Intimidator, Nighthawk, Windseeker, the Drop Tower, and the Sky Tower were all closed. So there was not a lot of other things to do, unfortunately, but safety first. We don't want you going 325 feet in the air and getting knocked over yeah. by the wind. But anyways... I was there for the food festival, the Taste of the Carolinas. And basically, it, it's a little bit different from last year. Um, last year, it was spread out a little bit more over two or three different areas of the park. This year, it's in one area of the park outside of Harmony Hall, which is one of their big new eating establishments, right next to the Intimidator. So you can eat and ride, eat and ride, eat and ride if the wind's not blowing. Um, and this year, they're offering taste tokens, which you buy a token... And they're about $1.30 a piece, but you buy them in packages. And the food tastes either cost two, three, or four tokens. So you're going to spend anywhere from like $2.50 up to $5. Can you use the tokens for, for the ball? Yes. Yeah, you could. I was going to keep them and make necklaces oh, out. Oh, fair enough. But that's different. So they've got nine different booths that cover the different areas of North and South Carolina. Like uh, Asheville had some amazing ravioli and a nice, Nisa's sausage popover, which was great. Um... Upstate South Carolina had a great jalapeno pimento sauce that burned my tongue. <laughs> there was the Low Country, which had a lot of fish, so we didn't get it, but we did get the chocolate bourbon pie, which was awesome. There's the Lexington Barbecue. Say no more, Jeff. You need to come just for this. Yes, I do. And I will treat you to real barbecue this way. Um, they had also the South Carolina Barbecue booth, which was kind of close. It, you know, it was still good, but I had a pulled pork spring roll with... Carolina mustard sauce. I'm on board. Neat, very very good. Uh, there was a Charleston booth that had some glazed chicken that was uh, marinated in sweet tea and a Lady Baltimore cake, which that was kind of neat. And then the Outer Banks, unfortunately, was all seafood, and I didn't try it because I'm afraid of seafood. I can't blame I'm you. I'm afraid of haunted houses and seafood. <laughs> the two scariest exactly. things in the, the world. The two scariest things in the world. But there was a. They also had a huge craft beer selection. They had wine that you get. They have wine tastings. They had um, uh, bands that were playing throughout the weekends. And I, I, I should have uh, said this earlier. It's only on Friday. Uh, it's only on Saturdays and Sundays from like 11 till right before closing. Started on April the 8th. And I think it goes to like May, yeah, Sunday, May 1st. So if you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area on the weekend, this is fun. It's like a mini food and wine. There are like 21 or 22 different tastes you can experience, uh, which is fun. You know, it's nice to walk around and then ride some world-class coasters. And I do have to give one shout-out. Well, two. Uh, Chris Sutra, I hope I'm saying his last name. He's the executive chef at Carowinds. I got to talk to him for a few minutes. The guy is awesome. And I got to tell him how much the food has improved at Carowinds over the past couple of years. Uh, so I like to talk to him a little bit. And plus, he gave me a free taste of something, but we won't tell anybody. Heck yes. And the, uh, the second shout-out is to Colin Henderson, who is with Heart of Ice Sculptures. And this is his second year there. He does ice sculptures for Carowinds while he's there. And he did a cool Carolina Harbor one, sat and spoke with us for a little while, uh, talked about how he did it, and he was really cool. So if anybody needs an ice sculpture near Charlotte, give him a call. 
But it was fun. If you're in the area and you like roller coasters and you want to try some good food, check out the Taste of the Carolinas at Carowinds. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the Skipper's Canteen over in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, there is a notice that on Thursday in the main dining hall, Dr. Henry Jones Jr. of Barnett College will be speaking on ancient rituals of South American tribes. So it sounds like a can't miss lecture, like I would totally go to this. But unfortunately, pinned next to the notice is another note saying that the lecture has been postponed due to a mishap in an ancient temple. Of course, this is all tying back to the storyline of Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye in Disneyland, which Indiana Jones is lost within, and, you know, he helps you get out during the course of the ride. So, it's kind of cool that they tie those two, you know, on opposite coasts attractions together. But a, That's a fantastic way to do it. It is really cool. A nice, simple, simple subtle thing. Um, but a big shout-out to Randall A. for sending that one in. Good eye, Randall. Thanks for checking that one out. But still don't look in the eye of Mara. No. Okay? No, no. Do not because if you do look in the eye you won't get the chance of winning riches okay or prizes such as and such as a weekly prize from community Corps weekly okay there we go brought it in back. our year of a million or so limited time condensed. really hoping you're gonna pull that one off drawing. you need a little nudging but you hit it now you were pushing me i was going i was trying to meter it a little bit better that's fine that's fine but that's okay that's okay we can live with so, it. so this week's prize is another wonderful prize pack from fairy godmother travel travel so thank you Teresa corey over at fairy godmother travel and the winner for this week is denise s from irvine california Yay, Yay! I could deliver it if I had it at my house, so Teresa will have to send it to you. <laughs> so it's easier for her to email it, mail it to you, and then you can drive it over there. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So if you see a strange man knocking on your door, hello, it's just me. <laughs> Speaking of strange men, no. Wait, what? No, we don't need no more segue, segues. Do no more segues. No more segues. We're fine. So, okay. Well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Be sure to leave us a comment or rate us on iTunes or on YouTube. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Exactly. Email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to say what's going on or what's up or to enter the contest. Heck, Please do. Yes. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagineerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And you can always give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And visit our web store at communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com to pick out some awesome t-shirts. And if you want your official cadet membership card or stickers, you still got a couple weeks left, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can help support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash Weekly to help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Canadian David Tennant.